At this time, uh, would you take your Bibles and turn back again to that passage that we read earlier, uh, beginning in Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. As you're doing that this morning, I'd like to start off with um, just a few questions. Um, we're coming up on our annual meeting uh, here in a few more days, and I'm thinking about our annual theme and, and the church, and so I, I put together this message based on that meeting coming up Friday to kind of spiritually and mentally prepare us for uh, the things that we want to talk about um, at Faith Baptist Church and what it means for us to be the church God wants us to be. And so let me start with, how should we measure the greatness of a church? Our church, in fact. What makes a church great in American culture today? Uh, the word great is often used, we're going to see in our passage in the New Testament. It's the Greek word and the English we get mega from. And certainly we have mega churches scattered all over the, uh, the landscape of American, our American country. Um, and they are mega in many ways. Um, church, a great church today in our culture would probably be one of mega size, or that's the consideration that most people would give having thousands of people attending on Sunday mornings, um, although it's still about 75 to 100 people was the average attendance in most churches all throughout America. We do have mega or great churches of great size, um, and that's one of the, I think, keys, quote-unquote, or one of the marks of a successful or great church. Another one is a mega facility. Um, usually includes gigantic property, huge buildings, Sometimes I've even seen the one near my sister in Kansas City. Uh, it's like a stadium or a shopping mall. I mean, that's how big these facilities are. And that's, that's part and parcel of what it means to be a mega facility or a mega church. Um, mega money. They have great amount of money, spending millions of dollars on state-of-the-art auditoriums and sound system and lights and, and on and on it goes. Um, often they are uh, pastored by a mega celebrity. Um, someone who has got a charismatic personality, writing books, speaking at large conferences, probably has his own blog, radio show, TV appearances, and even sometimes um, appearances at the White House. And so pastors with big names and are big celebrities uh, as part of the greater mega churches that are around in our country. And then they have, of course, mega ministries, uh, influence and impact on a large scale, usually both locally and globally around the world. And so there are a lot of things that people would say in our culture, that's really what makes a great church. But allow me to ask the question one more time, but this time just slightly differently. I just want to add two words to it. And so here it goes. What makes a church great in our American culture today to God? And those two words, to God, really, in my estimation, make all the difference in the world. If you're not familiar or aware of, you should be, that the world's definition and God's definition of great are usually quite different from one another, and usually in many ways. And I'd like to show you that. I'd like to show you what I would say would be an example of God's estimation of what a great church is all about, and that's why I had you turn to Acts 4.32 through 5.11, because the word great or mega is used in a double usage kind of way that both frames are, it does frames our text both at the beginning and at the end. Um, it's a double usage in the first section 
And both of them are mentioned in chapter 4 in verse 33. And it says, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord. And then it says, and great grace was upon them all. So on the apostles was great power. They were working miraculous signs. They were preaching with the Holy Spirit power to the resurrection of Jesus. And a lot of people were being saved. Great power on the apostles, but great grace on the people in the way that they were using their properties and lands and finances to meet the needs of everybody else. That's how the text begins with this double usage. Great power, mega power, mega uh, grace. But when you get to the second section of our text, there's the second double usage of the word great, but in a completely different, almost opposite way as the first two times great was used. And this time it's in chapter 5 and verse 5 and chapter 5 and verse 11, if you look there. And they are these two uses of great are identical in both of these verses. And it says that the church had great fear. And you'll see why, because a double death is going to take place. And so a great church in the first century in Jerusalem was not mega in the way that normal people churches are measured today, although they did have 8,000 new believers attending the daily services. Um, a lot of people had recently got saved, and uh, but they were the only church around, so there's not much else to compare to, but they did have a lot of people, which is a good thing in and of itself if those people are there because of conversion. Um, they did meet in a mega facility. Um, the temple was one of the great wonders of the world, but they didn't own it. It wasn't theirs. Um, and so they were basically borrowing, so to speak. Um, they did not have mega money, although the money they did have, uh, they were investing it and using it in supporting people and their physical needs and all the things of the needs of the people who were poor and needy. So they didn't have a lot of money, but they were giving their money away to those who had great needs. They did have mega pastors. I mean, Peter was there and the apostles were there, but these mega pastors, as it were, were not celebrities. They were truly devoted disciples uh, of Jesus Christ. Um, they did not yet have mega ministries globally, but their ministry that was taking place locally was growing by leaps and bounds all the time as the needs of so many people that were getting saved were trying to be met by the apostles. So in a very short time, um, they're going to be great in ways that would never be marked as great in our day. If you look at, again, a third use, which is not our intention to um, exposit today, a third double use of the word great is found in Acts 8 and verse 1. And it says that they were having great persecution. And then the next verse, it says they're going to have a great lament uh, over Stephen, who was stoned and martyred for the cause of Christ. And so... As Acts unfolds, what you find out is that greatness, as far as a church is concerned, as far as God's definition go, is marketably different than what our world and American Christianity would think is great. And what is emphasized in this section that we're going to take a look at is not any of the things that today's church or culture calls great when it comes to a church, but rather it's definition, God's definition is different. The early church was great for very different reasons. And the reasons were, is because they were great because they had the great presence of their God among us. And that presence was having a great effect on how the Christians who were part of that church were living. So based on that, let me give you my definition 
of what God would say or the book of Acts would include, and especially this passage, what a great church is. A great church is one that is great vertically because of God's presence acting horizontally in and through God's people in a great way. So that was a mouthful, I get it. Um, So let me say it to you one more time. Let me have you get the definition based on this text. A great church is one that is great vertically because of God's presence among them, and it's acting horizontally in and through God's people in great ways. That is God's streamlined definition of what he would say is a great church. Now, what's what's important here is that Luke demonstrates that the greatness of the early church was a different kind of greatness. And the way he emphasizes that is by using a very strong contrast between two of the main characters that are mentioned in this text in the early church, in this story at least. And those two are Barnabas and Ananias. Now, if you were able to tune in Wednesday night when we had our midweek service, we talked about the importance of God's presence and how God's presence is with us in both prosperity and in adversity. And we did that by contrasting side by side the life of Joseph and the life of Judah. Uh, Judah in Genesis 38 and Joseph in Genesis 39. And so this morning, not in the Old Testament, but we want to take a New Testament contrast and comparison in Acts, Acts 4 and 5 between Barnabas and Ananias, who are also presented in Scripture like Joseph and Judah were, side by side to make a very important point. And that point this morning is, is what makes a great church? What is a great church comprised of? And so we're going to let each of those two characters, Barnabas and Ananias, who represent the two uh, ways that are are two opposing ways of greatness um, that are in this text so that we can get an idea what God thinks. First of all, Barnabas represents God's presence in believers' hearts. Now, if you'll notice in chapter 4 and verse 32, here's how it starts out because this is an important point that we get need to get solidified in our mind as we talk from 432 to 437. And the text is going to go from like a funnel, from believers in general, a group of people who believe, to one person in particular that's an example of all the truths that the believers are as a whole. So we're going to go from believers all the way down to Barnabas. And the first group of people with Barnabas are an example of true believers because that's what the text says. Look what it says. Now the number, the full number of those who believed. So he wants us to know that there's a big number of people and they truly believe in Jesus Christ and here's what believing in Christ looks like. All right? And notice in the text that if you read all the chapters up until this point, you'll know that these believers have not been saved for a very long time. In fact, it's been a very short time. Uh, Perhaps maybe for some just a few days, some a few weeks, or maybe a month or so. But if you read chapter 2 and verse 41, and then just right previously in this chapter, chapter 4 and verse 4, they're also called believers. Um, It says that they have been saved and, and God's presence is with them. But their lives... These new believers' lives have changed, and this is what I want to focus and concentrate on. They have changed in two very notable ways, okay? And those two changes are they have changed on the inside, and they have changed on the outside. Now, as I talk about these two changes on the inside and outside, I want you to keep in what these things I'm talking about in mind that this is going to be setting up for a contrast because everything that this group of believers and Barnabas are, Ananias and Sapphira are not, So let's keep that in mind. So we're going to go back and we're going to walk through real quickly 
um, these two notable changes in the lives of believers where God is present in their hearts. And so number one is inside change. And here's what the uh, Luke uh, describes that inside change as being. He says in verse 32, there are one heart and soul, literally in the Greek, heart and soul one. And when you put a word at the, bo- the back of a clause, at the very end of a sentence, as it were, that is the word that is emphatic. That's the one. So they had this unity. They, in the early church, if you truly believed, you were unified with everybody else internally. And what I mean by that is that when someone truly believes, there's always a transformation that takes place, and here's how it works, from the inside out. See, the true believers in the early church, there was an invisible change, heart and soul. And that change was a change of their entire orientation of their heart and soul. It it changed them completely. The framework of how they thought, their passions, their emotions, their desires, their priorities, their morals. It all changed on the inside. And in fact, a little phrase, heart and soul, is one that's borrowed from the Old Testament. And it's used numerous times in the Old Testament, one of which being the Shema in Deuteronomy 6 and verse 5. And those two words, when they're put together, heart and soul, always describe a complete and total devotion to God. And what these early true believers had in common that was true of every one of them, is that they were completely devoted to God on the inside. You see, they weren't just religious people, like a lot of people who come to church, and perhaps even our church, um, who are just kind of going through, ritualistically going through the motions because that's how they were brought up and that's what they do. No, these people had been changed at a heart level, a core level, at the very, the essence of who they were had been radically transformed. Uh, by God. And, and I, that's the subjective part. See, see, true believers are changed radically, completely on the inside. So they become devoted to the Lord. That's subjective. But what is always true of someone who is genuinely a Christian is that the subjective becomes objective. And by that I mean the inside change always is demonstrated, displayed, or expressed by an outside change. Their invisible change becomes a visible change. And that's why the little conjunction and is mentioned right there at the outset of verse 32. And it reads, Now the full number of those who believe were of one heart and soul, and no one said, see, and no one said. So there's something, it's not just this interchange that nobody can see. No, he's going to tell you, this is why they're true believers, because that interchange expresses itself in an outer change. And what was it? It was about their possessions. No one said, because their heart had been changed, no one said that all the belongings and money and things they had, they said it wasn't their own. See, now the interchange, living for God, meant it would be shown by how they live for others. See, it was a change on the inside and on the outside. So what was in their heart was demonstrated by what was in their hand. They were loving God supremely by loving others sacrificially. Let me say it to you this way. When true believers are Christians who are changed on the inside, here's what's true on the outside. They hold money loosely and people tightly. Did you get that? That is a big theme in Luke's writings, whether it's his gospel or the book of Acts, is that knowing Jesus 
truly experiencing salvation, here's what will be true of you. And it's so many parables, so many stories, real people that Jesus talks about in the, in, the, in the Luke's gospel and all throughout the New Testament church. In Luke's writing, he always says, here's how you can know that someone's a Christian, is they hold money loosely and people tightly. Do you remember, and I'm sure you do, Charles Dickens' um, story of Scrooge? Um, I think about that often this time of year because I've gone over to McCarty Theater in Princeton over the years probably three or four times and seen the great rendition. If you ever get a chance to go, it's well worth the money um, about Scrooge. And I've read the book. I've seen the, the play. And you know it as well as I do. There are three spirits who uh, come to Scrooge and they take him on various little trips and adventures together. And what they do is they show him his greed. They, they want him to know how selfish he's been and how he's wasted his whole life virtually because he's all been all about himself. And, and the area where he's mainly been about himself is his money. And so through that night, three spirits take him and eventually at the end of it all, they take him and show him his doom. They take him to the grave and the grave marker has his name on it. And it, it completely freaks him. He's frightened by it as anyone would be. And it's like showing him in the grave. And then all of a sudden he wakes up from all of it and he's not in his grave. He's in his bed, in his house, and it's Christmas morning. And what Scrooge realizes as that he's been given a second chance. Um, he's going to experience grace. He's not really dead. He, 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 the last line of his life or the final words are not how selfish he's been with his money because here's what was true of Scrooge before that day on Christmas Day, the day we celebrate Jesus' birth. It was he held money tightly and people loosely. But see, what once quote-unquote, the grace had come into his life and he knew that he had got a second chance. The exact opposite became true of him. He bought the gigantic turkey that was hanging in the store and he began to give raises to his employees and he helped uh, the little crippled boy to be able to get crutches and help medically and his whole life changed. And so he went from holding money tightly and people loosely to holding money loosely and people tightly. I mean, it, it just changed him radically. And see, I think that's a good illustration, a good example story about what the gospel, according to Luke, is to do in your life and mine. That was true in the early church. People who were true believers, really believers, were people who held money loosely and people tightly. And I'm so thankful and it's a great time for me to preach this message because we just came off of Missions Month. And our church, by and large, our people are those kinds of people. I mean, over $40,000 in Missions Month and so many projects and things that we're able to do. And people have given sacrificially and generously during the pandemic in such unbelievable ways. And, and by and large, that's the kind of people we have at Faith Baptist Church. We have people who hold money loosely. And people tightly. And, and that was true. Look at verse 33. It said that was true of, and I, I circled it in my scripture, all of them. But one person who was like that, who held their money loosely and people tightly, one person who was a great example of that amongst all those true believers was a guy named Barnabas. And that's what he was like. And, and before I go on to describe him a little bit more, let me ask you, is that what you're like? I know it is true of a lot of us, but, but is it true of you? I mean, is that what you're, is that the kind of 
transformation from the inside out that you've experienced? Does it show up to what is truly in your heart? Does it show up in what is in your hand and how you view your money that you don't see things as being your own, but they're God's and, and they're always at his disposal and the disposal of people in our church who have needs. See, that's crucial. Can I point it out in the text for you? Can you note this? That it really wasn't the apostles, the leaders of the church, that were noted as the ones selling their houses and their properties and their fields and giving it to people. Really, the apostles were more people who were in charge and organizing it all. But in the text, it's people in the church serving other people in the church. You see, it's the people who are noticing someone has needs. It's people who are selling their stuff, people who are meeting their needs. It's the people bringing their money and their resources. And three times it says laying it at the apostles' feet. It's the people doing it. Now, Barnabas is a leader. I mean, he is. So it's not just the people. It's not to excuse the pastors or the deacons or the leaders, not at all, because Barnabas seems to have been a leader. I mean, he's prominent in the book of Acts. Other than Peter and Paul, he's mentioned 23 times, which is third most of anybody in the book of Acts. He's a prominent guy. It says in Scripture that his name is Joseph, kind of like the Joseph in the Old Testament. So we, last Wednesday and Sunday, we compared two Josephs. And here's this guy who's a Levite from Cyprus. Now, in the Old Testament, Levites didn't have land. Now, their inheritance was the Lord and the work that he gave them to do. But by the time a New Testament comes around, Barnabas seemingly has land. And, and here's the thing that's changed about him. And though he has land and they never were allowed to, he's not holding on to it. He's giving it to the church. He's selling it and he's taking all the proceeds and putting it at the apostles' feet because he wants us to know whether you're a lay person or whether you're a leader in the church. What should be true of all believers, no matter what their role or position in church is, is that we, listen, we hold money loosely, but we hold people tightly. See, I, I want that to mark our church. I want us to be people, not just the pastors or deacons. I want to be all the people say, hey, well, yeah, I know she has a need. And I, and I text her and I call her or I send them as Carolyn Stout does. The car, I send cards to her and I can tell you people who are in the meals ministry and they give food and they don't have to be a part of the ministry. They just do things and they check up on other people and they visit them in the hospital. And we go to funerals of one another and we go to weddings of one another and we're there to celebrate and weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice because see, that's what marks true believers in the early church and that's who Barnabas was his nickname was Barnabas his real name was Joseph but Barnabas means son of encouragement son of exhortation and you'll see if you read his life biography so to speak throughout the book of Acts that that's what he was always doing he was always looking for people who had need whether it was Saul of Tarsus or people in his local church and he was always getting into their lives and supporting them and being positive and encouraging you know why because that's what true believers do but give me a minute, because this is all for a contrast. Remember that? Um, Barnabas um, is going to be completely different than Ananias, and Ananias different than Barnabas. Barnabas represents God's presence in believers' hearts. But Ananias represents Satan's presence in unbelievers' hearts. You see, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, we get the framework. We get the second set of the double usage of the word great or mega. And again, it's in verses 5 and 11, and it's great fear. Um, the episode, this episode in the early church, when Ananias and Sapphira fall over dead, um, it makes everybody in the church afraid. 
And it's intended to make us fear as well. Um, This double usage of great is really intended to be a double warning, as it were. A warning to us because God's presence in our midst is no trifling matter. That God is not to be toyed with. That Christianity is not a game. And and, and what Luke wants us to know, in the, or wanted them to know in the first century and in the 21st century church, is that God's presence, hear me, God's presence is not the only presence in a local church. That Satan's presence is also there. And so this is a warning. And so we should, I, I'm hoping that this text makes you afraid as much as it makes them afraid. And, and so we have at the beginning of chapter five, an introduction to who Ananias and Sapphira are. Ananias is a Hebrew name and it means Yahweh has shown favor, but it's not true in his life. Um, Sapphira is really an Aramaic name and it means beautiful one. And by the end of this text, She's not. She's going to be anything but beautiful on the inside. It's going to turn ugly with her. And and to let you know the difference between Barnabas and Ananias. I mean, there's no doubt Barnabas is a true believer. Look how he lives. Look what his heart is like, and look what his hand demonstrates about the inside and outside change. That is not what is true about Ananias. But it doesn't appear that way. In Luke's writing in the book of Acts, he introduces seven different people with the word. And there was a man, or as other versions say, and there was a certain man. Every one of those seven introductions, including Ananias, when Luke uses that phrase, he is introducing someone who is a unbeliever, someone who at the time is not saved yet. And so what Luke is doing is describing what's in the heart of a believer in contrast to what's in the heart of an unbeliever. And the difference between the two is huge. Barnabas possessed faith. Ananias professed faith. Barnabas's faith was not real. It was, I mean, Barnabas's faith was real on the inside. Ananias's was fake on the inside. Um, but they both seem to be doing very sacrificial things for people with their money on the outside. And so from the outside, if you looked at Ananias, you would say there was not much of a difference between him and Barnabas, but there was a world of difference. Can I say an eternity of difference between the two of them? Because the only thing that was closely resembling one another was the outside. And on the outside, they both seemed to be the same. But on the inside, there was a huge, huge difference. Look at chapter 4 and verse 37. It speaks of Barnabas. He sold a field. And then later on in the verse it says, he laid it at the apostles' feet. All the money he got from that selling, he put up in same, very, very similar words. Uh, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 of Ananias. He sold a piece of property. And then it says he also, at the end of that pa- passage, in verse 2, laid it at the apostles' feet. So on the outside, they both seem the same. But on the inside, they are very, very different. There is a very big, stark contrast. And the The biggest difference between the two of them is what is taking place on the inside. So let me show you the two inside terms that bring a stark contrast between the early church and Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira. The first word is heart. Remember the early church, including Barnabas? How was their heart described? 432 again. One heart and soul. They were unified. They had a total devotion to God. What describes Ananias' heart? Chapter 5 and verse 3, it says this, And Satan has filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. Satan. So one, you have a spirit-filled heart, 
and one is a satanic heart. Barnabas had a heart that was motivated by God to do all that he was doing. Ananias had a heart that was motivated by Satan. Now those are extreme polar opposites and you would never have known how radically the difference on the inside was between the two men if you just merely looked on the outside. See, one is said in chapter 4 and verse 31, here's what describes the church, including Barnabas. In chapter 4 and verse 31, it says they were filled with the Holy Spirit, studied the book of Acts and even the book of Luke. And he talks about people on both sides of the equation who are being filled. Many of them filled with the Holy Spirit. At times they are filled with demons. But either people are filled with God or Satan and there isn't anything in between. And so the early church, 431, Barnabas being one of them, they were people who were filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what's true of believers. But that's not what was true on the inside for Ananias. Did you see it? Follow me. Chapter 5 and verse 3 again, it says, He was filled with Satan. Satan had filled his heart. And there's a huge difference between filled with the Spirit and filled with the evil one. And what was true of Ananias, because he was faking, is because he was a fake disciple. He was a phony on the inside. And it demonstrated when he kept back, verse 2 of chapter 5, he kept back some of the money. He sold his property like everybody else did. He laid it at the apostles' feet like everybody else did. But what was different was, is he was hedging his bets. In case this Christianity thing never worked out, he put some money aside for him and his wife and included her in understanding what they were doing. He put some money aside and said, let's keep this back in case we need it down the road. Right? And so here's Ananias saying, hey... In front of everybody else, I'm giving it all. I'm giving it all to God. I I want you to know I'm totally devoted. But the reality was, he was keeping some of it back. And he was lying about it. Because here's what's true of unbelieving hearts. They are more concerned about appearance than reality. They are more motivated by secular categories. They, They do what they do, even in church, Um, And they're motivated by prestige and honor and influence by giving to others as if they were really making a true sacrifice when they are not. But they want to appear to be that way. And when people are more concerned about facades and appearances than the reality of their love and devotion to God and the church in their heart, it means this, that Satan is still in control of their hearts. No matter what it may look like on the outside, Satan controls the heart of people who hold money tightly and people loosely. And Luke wants us to know that one of the marks of a true Christian is that you are freed from the love of money and you are freed in doing so to love people. Because Luke wants everyone to know, all of us to know, that you cannot do both at the same time. You cannot, Ananias and Sapphira learned the hard way, you cannot hold on to people and hold tightly onto your money at the same time. So what was not in Ananias' heart, a love for God and others, showed up in what was not really in his hand. What was not in his heart was not in his hand, and that was the full amount of money. He partially kept it back because he really wasn't fully committed. He wasn't really devoted, and it showed up in the real amount of money that he was giving because... He was holding people loosely and money tightly instead of the other way around. Now, God knows this, and he lets Peter know this. And so when Ananias comes to report what he is giving with his wife, Peter asks him in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 5, he asks him six probing questions. 
And those were great questions. You can read them in the text for yourself that Ananias needed to hear because Peter wanted him to repent. He wanted him to turn around. And I want to take in our situation, in our circumstances, and I would like to ask you six questions this morning. First one, what does your hand say about your heart? I'm just going to ask the questions. You apply them. What does your hand say about your heart? Number two, are your hand and heart complementary or contradictory? Number three, which do you hold tightly and loosely? Do you hold money tightly and people loosely? Or do you hold people tightly and money loosely? Number four, are you more concerned? Be honest. Be honest. Are you more concerned about appearances than reality when it comes to your spirituality and your relationship with God? Number five, do you think that God really doesn't see your hypocrisy? Do you think it goes unnoticed? Number six, are you truly a believer? Do you really know God through Jesus Christ? Now, the double uses of the word great um, are powerful. There are warnings in this passage. Great fear, verse 5. Great fear, verse 11. And what they lead to is the story of a double death. And double deaths, sudden deaths throughout the Old Testament, um, there's a number of them. Uh, Nadab and Abihu who offered strange fire. Hophni and Phinehas. I mean, you have Achan who took what was forbidden. You have Abijah. You have Uzzah who talked the, touched the ark when he tried to steady it and he was struck dead by God. I mean, all of these are warnings to God's people, Israel, and they're warnings to us. And, and, and I want you to know that God did not strike Ananias and Sapphira down. Because God kills every hypocrite. Praise his name that he doesn't because every one of us would be dead, including me, right? And so God didn't strike them dead because God kills every hypocrite. Here's why. Because he wants to give us a warning. He wants us to give an indication about how God really feels about our hypocrisy. He may not strike us dead when we, we are hypocrites, but he wants you to know that it angers him. He wants you to know that he hates it. He wants you and I to know that faking faith in his presence should be a very fearful thing. Something that should not be toyed with, something that's played with. It should not be considered a game. It should be something that is of the most serious nature possible in our lives that we are not faking following Jesus. And one of the most profound truths, I think, that in this text that I need to share with us before we conclude this morning. In chapter 5 and verse 3, it says, Satan filled Ananias' heart to lie. And then in the very next verse, chapter 5 and verse 4, Peter says to him, You have not lied to man, but to God. Satan filled his heart, and although that is true, hear me, Ananias is still responsible before God for his actions and his attitudes. Yeah, he was pushed and tempted by Satan to do it. And you may be having that in your life. You may have Satan, but you cannot say that you are 
no longer accountable or culpable for your lies or your actions or your hypocrisy. You are because no, ma- no matter how influential Satan is, here's what God says. You are personally responsible for everything you do in your life. And if you're faking following Jesus and you're faking being a disciple, God will hold you accountable for it. That's what he says to Ananias and that's what he says to us. Well, it's only three hours later, the Bible says, in verse 7, that his wife comes on the scene. Peter, either not knowing or wanting her to admit it, um, asks her, did she sell the land with her husband for such a price? And this is Sapphira, the beautiful one, to show that she's beautiful on the inside, but she doesn't because she has gone along with her husband. They are co-conspirators in this whole thing. And so she says, yes, we did sell it for this much. She's not going to tell that she, she she's going to tell a lie like her husband did. That they She's not letting anybody know that they're not really who they say they are. They're co-conspirators in this whole thing. And here's what happens in both Ananias and Sapphira. They, they lied at the apostles' feet and now they died at the apostles' feet. And here's how the passage is concluded in 5.11. And the verse reads, And great fear came upon the whole church. It is the first time in the book of Acts that the word church is used to describe God's people together. See, this is what it means to be a great church. That God's presence is with us in prosperity so that we can help meet the needs of others and we can have an impact of witnessing to others about Jesus being resurrected from the dead and all that he's done. See, he is with us. His presence is with us in prosperity, but it's also in adversity. When there are people who are wheat, um, uh, I should see tares among the wheat, when they're phony, faking disciples, God also is with us then. See, great power to witness great grace. So they're sharing their faith and they're sharing their fortunes and great fear, great fear, because there's a great God in our midst here at Faith Baptist Church. He is a great God and he wants to do great things in the lives of his people if we truly know him. Jonathan Edwards preached his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God, to his congregation in Enfield, Massachusetts in July of 1741. And here's the very last words that he said to his people, his congregation in that very sermon. He says, and I quote, Therefore, let everyone that is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. The wrath of Almighty God is now undoubtedly hanging over a great part of this congregation. Let everyone fly out of Sodom, haste, and escape for your lives. Look not behind you. Escape to the mountain, lest you be consumed. My prayer this morning for you is, is that God will grant us as a church and you as an individual the greatness that you need, whether it's great power to preach the gospel, great grace to love others, or great fear to come to the realization that you don't really know him and that you put your faith and trust in him. See, there may be some people at Faith Baptist Church who need to put their money at the apostles' feet. But there may be just as many people who need to put their lives at the feet of Jesus and be truly dedicated to him and know him as their Lord and Savior. May God grant us and you 
the greatness that you and our church really needs this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for helping us understand, according to the book of Acts in these two chapters, what a great church is. We need and we ask for your great power, like the the apostles who preached and taught about the resurrection of Jesus and had the great power of God behind them. I pray that would be true of our preaching and teaching in this ministry. And for great grace, I pray that like it was in all the people of the early church, it would be all upon all of those who truly believe here at Faith Baptist Church and that we would not only love you supremely, but we love each other sacrificially and that we'd be a people who our hearts and our hands are connected together to demonstrate that your grace is upon us. And for those who are here this morning, uh, perhaps who are still pondering whether they really truly know you, I pray that you bring great fear, great fear, Lord, as a warning to them that they would run, run from their sins and run to a Savior who loved them and gave himself for them. And we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. In his wonderful name we pray. Amen. May the grace, the great grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.